Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are on episode 25. We are a quarter of the way to 100. This is super exciting. Kind of as exciting as yesterday was. We're back to flying. Had a shadow with me yesterday. Boy, that was a phenomenal. We did so much yesterday. We went to St. George, Utah from out of California. Looked at real estate in St. George, Utah. Flew over to Las Vegas to go look at the Boxable facility and do an interview with the executives over at Boxable. Then we went and looked at real estate in Summerlin and some northern parts of Las Vegas. Then we flew back and went in the spa and had a party. <laughs> it's like, holy moly. It was one heck of a day yesterday. A lot of travel. They got more travel uh, today. Today we're going up to uh, Northern California. We've got an interview. Uh, I think we're scheduled today with ARK Invest, which will be pretty cool. We'll uh, post that uh, later. It's uh, one of the analysts over at ARK. Uh, Mr. Brett, he's awesome. He's been on the channel before, and he's got some pretty incredible insights into the world of AI. Uh, so we'll be talking to him later today. And uh, wow, look at, have you, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sure you have, have you seen crypto? Crypto trying to play catch up uh, after the week of uh, SEC slamming versus stable coins and Coinbase trying to defend stable coins, but defending stable coins really poorly. What did you end up with? You actually ended up with Bitcoin that just in the last 24 hours rallied 8%, Ethereum up about 6% in just the last 24 hours. Binance uh, token trying to come back with a little bit of a 5% uh, move there. You're not seeing as much of that kind of move on some of the other smaller coins, whether that's uh, Cardano or Solana, uh, but you are seeing it in the larger ones. So it makes you wonder, are markets playing catch up to the equities rally that we've seen? Are they a little bit sat more satisfied that, hey, may maybe things won't be as terrible uh, for crypto uh, outside of the stablecoin realm? It seems like that's where the SEC is really sort of honing in on right now is uh, companies' stablecoins and customer assets, not so much trying to fight the existence of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is probably the better direction to go anyway. Uh, now, we do have, uh, uh, so let's see, we've got crypto, we talked Boxable, we talked flight. We do have PPI coming out today. That's producer price inflation. Uh, so I'll give you some heads up on this. That actually comes out in 20 minutes, so we'll cover it in about 20 minutes. But that's going to be a big market mover today, so market's relatively flat before that. But within about the next 21 minutes, we'll be reporting that. Do keep in mind that if you're watching this on uh, Facebook, Ignore the scammers and the Bitcoin scammers in the comments out of Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook where I stream, uh, or the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all of these platforms. Pretty much the only place you end up getting scammers is uh, Facebook. So do keep that in mind if you watch on Facebook, uh, lots of uh, scammers and spammers. Now, uh, we also have some fears about uh, the debt ceiling. It looks like you had the... Um, uh, Commerce Department to come out with some estimates for the debt ceiling. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, not the Commerce Department. The Congressional Budget Office. Congressional Budget Office forecasting that the government is at risk of a payment default as soon as July if lawmakers fail to raise the debt limit. Now, remember, we've talked uh, pr pretty regularly about the debt limit, and we believe, as well as the Federal Reserve believes, and most people on Wall Street believe, this is just going to be another one of those intense negotiations up to the minute. You kind of end up getting some kind of sell-off and uncertainty as the limit approaches, and then you get a buy-in after the debt limit ends up getting passed. Republicans are already negotiating uh, for uh, an increased debt limit as long as they receive some form of cuts in areas that they're looking to negotiate. That could be better funding for the border wall and finishing that off, border security funding. It could be less entitlement spending, uh, although they've come out recently to say they don't want to do a, or see any kind of cuts to 
uh, seniors, uh, like for example, social security style cuts, not expecting to see anything there. It looks like both sides have made that clear, especially during Biden's State of the Union address. But uh, these could be other, uh, let's say like work requirements or additional work requirements, I should say, for welfare recipients or otherwise. So these are all just things being talked about right now. But really, the CBO uh, shouting here that uh, there would essentially be an economic and financial catastrophe if Congress doesn't act is uh, something that's going to create some anxiety, especially since you had the Federal Reserve basically say, hey, uh, Jerome Powell said this in his last press conference. Essentially, there's nothing that they could do to protect us financially from a financial crisis if the debt ceiling does not get extended. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, Shane Huff here mentions, a week ago you reported on bears not being able to find any bad news and that they would end up moving on to the debt ceiling. Here it is. <laughs> uh, and yes, yes, I, I expect that. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, not a surprise at all uh, to me that now we're getting sort of these uh, debt ceiling uh, debates. And, and I think we'll see more of that, obviously, as, as time gets closer. Uh, and that's possibly because the, the economy is doing pretty dang well. And I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot more uh, anxiety over this consumer recession get delayed, basically, where you're essentially saying, yeah, all right, doesn't look like maybe we'll go into recession after all in the first half or second half even of 2023. Let's just delay it to 2024. So again, we've got Shopify reporting later. We've got, uh, I'm sorry, Shopify reported yesterday with PPI coming out later. Shopify, their forecast disappointed, so they're down a bit here in pre-market. Uh, their revenue in Q4 was actually up 26%. Gross merchandise volume was up 13%, so that's total sales on platform versus what they take in fees. Roku killed it. They were up about 12% here in pre-market. We'll see how they do during the day. Uh, and we'll probably go through Roku and uh, Shopify earnings as well as some real estate talk and Q&A in the course member live stream, which always happens right after uh, this uh, live stream. When the market is open, we do the course member live stream. We did extend that flash sale uh, through Friday, 11.59 p.m. And then uh, we do the Elite Hustlers live stream. We'll have our inaugural, our first one on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, and that'll be after this style uh, Meet Kevin Report live stream as well. We did also find out who bailed out FTX's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. Looks like it was uh, Larry Kramer. I don't think related, unlikely not, given the spelling is different from Jim Kramer. Uh, and uh, Andres Abicap, something like that. Uh, basically, you have some Stanford professors and, and a dean of Stanford Law uh, who ended up funding Sam Bankman-Fried's bailout uh, money as well as uh, his parents who leveraged their home to be able to bail out uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, recently, he's been, uh, he's been banned from using a VPN to circumvent uh, some of uh, his limitations. It seems like he's uh, somehow still actively been able to be, uh, well, let's just say, pretty dang active on the internet. And the judge isn't very happy since he seems to defy pretty much every rule that, uh, that is placed for him. But uh, then again, he wasn't much of a rule follower ever, uh, and apparently didn't seem to mind fraud either. But uh, you know what? Alleged fraud. We'll leave it there for now. So uh, that brings us now to Tesla. We've got a lot, a lot to talk about with Tesla. Uh, also, by the way, you can watch me on uh, Instagram uh, on my stories. Yesterday, I think I posted probably, I don't know, 10, 12 stories or whatever. I promised I'd post more stories. And we posted a lot of stories yesterday. So if you want to see kind of what, what I'm doing during the day when I'm uh, away from the YouTube, so to speak, uh, check me out on Instagram at Kevin. You'll get to see all those stories 
Uh, and I find it uh, quite entertaining. Hopefully you do as well. Now we've got to talk at Tesla, and a boy, oh boy, we've got a lot to talk about from new firings at Tesla. What the heck is going on with the supercharger network, and what does it have to do with the White House and billions of dollars? What's going on with Mr. Old School Charlie Munger lashing out at Tesla? And what's going on with the European Union? We've got a lot to cover. Let's see how quickly we can get through it. First, two days ago, we heard roses are red, violets are blue. We have a flash sale for you. That's 69% off on the programs on Building Your Wealth expiring Friday at 11.59 p.m. We extended that flash sales. Take advantage of that and get lifetime access. And yes, we, that is actually what I said two days ago. But then I also followed that up with saying that two days ago, individuals at Tesla Buffalo, New York, ended up circulating at the autopilot labeling team, which is kind of where you have minimum wage starting at $19, and you kind of sit and push a button like, yep, looks right, yep, no, looks wrong. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and you do all day long. They were pissed about apparently not getting snow days that they wanted and uh, being monitored for how long they were spending in the bathroom, which I, I don't know what's more weird, uh, the suggestion that the employee is concerned about people monitoring how long they're spending in the bathroom or the company monitoring potentially how long people are spending in the bathroom. I'm not sure, it all sounds a little weird, but they circulated a letter saying, roses are red, uh, violets are blue, unions start with you. And somebody at Starbucks thought it would be a good idea, apparently, like uh, somebody who helped start unions for Starbucks, decided to be a good idea to connect with people over at Tesla and try to start a union at Tesla. And so they got about 25 people to put a letter together and email Elon Musk and say, yo, we're unionizing. And uh, pretty much every one of you called it in not only the comments on the live chat or uh, in the, uh, uh, the what's it called uh, in, in the comments on the actual YouTube video. And what did you end up getting? Well, what you ended up getting was, as you all called it, you're fired. Tesla fired all 25 of the individuals who started suggesting that they wanted to unionize. Goodbye, unions. Now, Tesla has been slammed for this in the past. My expectation is even if Tesla were to get sued for firing people, for threatening to unionize, although they'll probably use a different rationale, it would be years before that sort of litigation actually ends up playing out. So we'll probably come back to the roses are red, violets are blue argument in 2025. And by then, honestly, I think Tesla's gonna be in a lot larger of a place than, uh, well, where we are today. <laughs> uh, now. Another thing, obviously, that we've got to talk about is what's going on with the Tesla supercharging network. Now, this is actually interesting. The Wall Street Journal did a phenomenal piece on this. I think they they, they put it together the most clearly. Uh, and then we'll get into Buffett and some of what's going on in Europe because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but we'll look at this. So. Tesla is expanding their non-Tesla supercharger pilot. Uh, and, and basically what uh, what they're doing is, look, they have 40,000 superchargers worldwide. And the White House gives like massive mega subsidies if you end up opening your supercharger network to other electric vehicles. And this makes sense because the White House wants more electric vehicles in America. But the big thing that everyone's worried about in America is premature electrification, of course. Remember the Dodge, the Ram ad for a vehicle that doesn't even exist yet? Anyway, people have range anxiety when it comes to buying electric vehicles. There aren't enough superchargers, and a lot of superchargers are just not super. They suck. They're very slow from other companies. Tesla, by far, has one of the most robust supercharger networks, one of the most reliable networks. Uh, and Tesla now plans to open at least 3,500 new superchargers and existing 250 KW 
BMW Chargers to drivers of all EVs by the end of the year. The White House is bragging about how wonderful this is for everybody. It actually is a good thing. Now, Tesla is expected to uh, receive potentially billions of dollars billions of federal subsidies to continue to build their supercharger network because they're doing this. Now think about that. That's incredible. So Elon Musk actually visited uh, with uh, the Biden administration about a month ago, and I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up talking about the supercharger network and how they were going to announce it. Apparently, in addition to him actually visiting with the Biden administration, Elon Musk participated in a call with their infrastructure coordinator, and they discussed about, uh, basically, their discussions revolved around improving highway charging. And this right here is what I love about Elon Musk, uh, is he's a very reasonable person. Uh, they, they say here, quote, he was very open, very constructive, and at the time he said his intent was to work with us to make the network interoperable. A lot of people say, hey, like, is Tesla seeding a competitive advantage for doing this? And I think the way to look at this is, yes, uh, to some degree, the Tesla supercharging network motivates people to buy a Tesla, right? That obviously is a draw. However, if you now let other people use the electric vehicle network, what you really potentially do is you increase congestion for people who have Teslas. You kind of take away that whole like Tesla club feeling exclusivity when you drive through a mall and there's just like a row of backed in Teslas and it looks really badass. I mean, it's like the best ad ever. And if you start seeing like Kias and Nissans or whatever plugging into the Tesla superchargers, it's kind of like, okay, it's not unique to Tesla anymore. Not that there's anything wrong with Kias or Nissans, okay? I'm just saying, not unique anymore. But, well, so let me first say, yes, there, there is some form of uh, potential negative in sort of that competitive advantage that Tesla might have. But I think the reality is people buying Teslas are probably not buying Tesla solely because of the supercharger network. They're either buying a Tesla because they want the full self-driving, the technology, how fantastic the freaking car is in terms of acceleration, uh, and, and just how sleek it is, right? You're, you're buying it for all of these other reasons. And the supercharger network, I personally believe, is just icing on the cake. Uh, and, and the reality is people who are not going to buy a Tesla probably just aren't going to buy a Tesla anyway. In fact, somebody very close to me, and I was really surprised by this, but somebody very close to me, they actually, uh, I asked them, I go, hey, have you, um, uh, they refused to buy a Tesla, by the way, and I asked them, I go, hey, did you see my latest Twitter post? And he's like, no, I uninstalled Twitter after Elon bought it. And, and I kind of like paused for a moment, and then I just said the quiet part out loud, and I'm like, I literally never thought I would meet someone in person who actually uninstalled the app because Elon bought it. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm one of them. And I'm like, I'm not even going to start. <laughs> it's like, we could still have beer, but I'm not even going to start because that's insane and ludicrous and silly. But whatever, everybody is entitled to their opinion. My opinion is very obvious. But anyway, those people, whoever, whomever they may be, I don't dislike them. I don't disrespect them for that. I think it's crazy, but that's okay. I also think in many regards, I'm crazy. But then again, I think you have to be crazy to wake up at three every day and work until, you know, work basically two jobs. But anyway, uh, which I'm, that's not to say that, oh, working two jobs, no big deal. A lot of people work two jobs, okay? Anyway, point of this is to say uh, that people who are not buying a Tesla are probably not buying a Tesla for other reasons outside of like the supercharging network potentially being available to them, right? So the way to look at it is the minus of, of, of people not buying a Tesla because of opening up the supercharger network, I personally think anecdotally is nominal. In addition to that, the plus is that Tesla's probably going to get billions, billions of dollars 
of, of money to expand the supercharging network, which actually attracts people to Tesla in the first place, right? Because you actually get cheaper charging rates in the Teslas, but it also potentially gives Tesla money to invest in their manufacturing ability. So you're getting more manufacturing subsidies to actually produce the uh, Tesla uh, uh, um, uh, charging vehicles, or not the charging vehicles, the charging stations. That's because if you actually look, let me see, where is it, where is it, where is it? If I look at housing in the Wall Street Journal article, they basically talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act requires a certain percentage, here it is, that uh, of the steel enclosures or housings needing to be manufactured in the United States starting immediately. And I think Elon Musk is going to look at that and he's going to be very smart. He's going to go, well, I mean, if you want us to manufacture more of these housings in the United States, we're going to need some big old tax credits to help us expand Giga Texas or whatever, right? Uh, and by 2024, at least 55% of the cost of all components needs to be manufactured in the U.S. Okay, hey, give us some bills so we can maybe mine more or whatever we want to do uh, in the United States. So I actually personally think this is absolutely fantastic. I think this is this is great. The loss you have is nominal. The subsidies you're getting are absolutely huge. Now we got to talk about Char Charlie Munger in just a moment, but I just want to, on the topic of subsidies, talk about, here's a Barclays piece. And I mean, I'm seeing stuff like this daily about talking about how Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction, or Reduction Act is a serious competitive threat to the European Union because of how many subsidies are going into battery storage and electric vehicles tax breaks for manufacturing them, like what we just saw for the EV network. And remember, if you actually go through uh, Tesla's document on, uh, you know, what they end up like, how it's going to end up working, that's this particular document here, you basically download the Tesla app and you can plug in other vehicles by just marking which charging stall you're at, and then you pay through the Tesla app. I do want to make it very clear though, on this note of subsidies and sort of a tangent, there is an additional cost for non-Tesla members. So non-Tesla members do pay a little bit more money. So I wanted to clear that up. But anyway, back to the subsidy stuff. The amount of money that's expected to flow into state support subsidies in the United States alone is expected to be somewhere around $440 billion into energy storage, green, solar, electric vehicles, you name it. Uh, and the same is expected to happen in Europe to somewhat of a smaller degree, but also massive. So sectors that are going to benefit from these subsidies, mining, energy, semis, capital goods, autos, chemicals, construction materials, utilities, uh, these investments are going to be huge. Uh, and I mean, keep in mind, we expect not only the United States to throw hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits and subsidies at this uh, at, at green vehicles and battery storage and that, but also Europe to compete. And after Europe, guess whom else? China, massive Chinese subsidies, 450 billion euros worth of subsidies in China's five-year plan to invest in, uh, in, in Chinese electric vehicles. So the amount of money that you're gonna get thrown into batteries and EVs probably over the next decade from governments is, gonna, is probably going to exceed a trillion dollars. I mean, this is like a huge stimmy check to the industry. It's absolutely insane. But you know who's not stimulating? I hate to say it, but it's Mr. Charlie Munger. Mr. Charlie Munger has some uh, choice words for uh, Tesla versus BYD. So let's listen into that. And uh, here we go. Question from Steven Spencer. Uh who writes in from New York, New York. He, he's curious why Mr. Munger prefers an investment in BYD to Tesla. Well, that's easy. Tesla last year reduced its prices in China twice. BYD increased its prices. We're direct competitors. 
We're so much ahead of BYD. I mean, BYD is so much ahead of Tesla in China. It's like a, it's just, it's almost ridiculous. It's almost ridiculous that that's actually not true. I mean, if you actually look at the real data, what do you end up having is you have BYD uh, selling half ICE vehicles and hybrids. Well, those are hybrids are ICE vehicles, right? And the other half are fully battery electric. If we just look at battery electric, battery electric vehicles sold by BYD were about 900,000 units in 2022. And Tesla sold about 7,000, sorry, 700,000 uh, in, in China of the battery electric vehicles, right? So you're talking about 900 versus 700, you're talking about 28%. I don't know if that's so far ahead. The numbers, I think, are a little bit more worth looking at. And keep in mind, BYD sells vehicles for fifteen dollars to $30,000 on average. The average selling price of a Tesla is knocking on the door of uh, $52,000. So you have a massively different audience you're appealing to. Smaller vehicles versus larger vehicles. Let's also look at the numbers. When you look at the BYD investor relations information, what do you actually have for the numbers for BYD? Well, you're looking at numbers that aren't anywhere near uh, Tesla's numbers in terms of margins. You're looking at maybe, maybe a net margin for Q4 sitting around 3.4%. Uh, it's better than it's been in the past, but 3.4% on net versus Tesla's 13 to 17% net bottom line numbers. Or if you look at uh, the gross margins, BYD gross margins, maybe $13, $14. Tesla on gross margin, 20 to 25. But whatever, Munger, let's keep listening to you for a moment. And if you look at BYD, which most people have never heard of, if you count all the manufacturing space they have in China to make cars, it would, it would amount to a big percentage of all the land in Manhattan Island. And nobody ever heard of them a few years ago. All right, let yeah. me jump to another question. This one comes from Michael Aseo, who says, "Did the this is in regards to some movement at Berkshire, some sales of Berkshire stakeholdings. Did the sale of some BYD and Taiwan semi-shares have anything to do with the relations between the United States and China, or was it for purely economic reasons? Well, BYD is selling about 50 times earnings. That is a very high price. Oh, come on, man. Now he's bagging on his own thing. I mean, come on. I'm starting to lose a little bit of respect, and I don't want to go on for this forever here on Munger. You know what? They've got their opinions. That's okay. But look, this is where Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway sold Taiwan Semiconductors. See it at the pit of that blue line there? To me, that looks a little bit paper handy. Now, don't get me wrong. They bought low. But that looks a little bit paper handy. And now you're telling us how great BYD is with the lower margins and it's still trading for 50 times earnings. You're basically saying it's trading for roughly the same valuation with worse margins and less expensive vehicles than Tesla. In fact, Bloomberg themselves expects that margins for BYD will suffer more than Tesla's. And this is despite the fact that Tesla has adjusted prices down a little bit versus BYD up a little bit. Again, substantially cheaper vehicle versus much more expensive vehicles than Tesla's. Tesla's just became the third most popular vehicle in Europe. And you know what? Look, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a Tesla bull, so maybe I'm jaded. But hey, you know what? Sorry, Charlie Munger. I ain't buying it. We got good news here on the anti-union move, I think. You've got a good news here on superchargers. You've got great news on uh, Tesla overall with margins. I'm a big fan. 
Now, we must talk PPI. You ready for this? PPI numbers coming in right now. PPI coming in. Hot, hot, hot. That's not good. PPI final demand coming in at 0.7. Oh, that's not good. That's bad. That's bad. You've got PPI expected was 0.4. You got 0.7. That is no bueno. Uh, then you got uh, core, uh, X food and energy. You got 0.5 versus the 0.3 expected. Also not good. Oh, this is terrible. PPI X food, energy and trade. Oh, dear Lord. 0.6 versus 0.2 expected. This is a terrible report. This is not good at all. Uh, holy smokes, PPI a final a demand, 6% year over year as opposed to the 5.4 survey. PPI year over year, uh, less food and energy. You're looking at 5.4 versus 4.9. That's also beat, uh, or uh, in other words, a worse number, a higher number. PPI, uh, X food, energy, and trade year over year coming in at 4.5 versus 4%. Terrible numbers. Absolutely terrible numbers on the PPI. That's not good. You do have housing starts that just came out as well. Minus 4.5% on housing starts. You were looking at 1.9. The last was also revised up substantially. Negative 1.4 was revised to negative 3.4. That shows you more slowing, substantially more slowing in the housing market than markets have expected. Uh, however, this, uh, this PPI number is absolutely terrible uh, markets basically moving straight down on this news. You went from about flat on the, the NASDAQ, uh, a close of yesterday of about 309. You're sitting in pre-market right now at about 306. You got most stocks turning red here in the pre-market from up about half a percent on Tesla, down now about 1%. It's going to be really interesting to see how uh, markets try to explain this one away. But holy smokes, these PPI numbers were terrible. These are, these are not good PPI numbers. Let's try to see what's actually going on. PPI uh, report so we can get to the bottom of what's actually in the report. But I'll tell you this, from, from what I'm seeing here, just these headline numbers, every single beat, not great. Uh, not great at all. We're going to go uh, print up the PPI report right now so we can look at it together. Uh, again, this is a beat across the board on everything. And I'm not talking about a little bit either. This, this is a terrible survey. Now, there is murmuring, and I want to start by saying this, there is a lot of talk uh, circulating that maybe, maybe, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to just pull this out of the hat, uh, you know, conveniently because it, it was a bad report and, you know, maybe Kevin Lane's a little bullish. Okay. But anyway, uh, there is, there is this talk about how surveys are potentially, potentially starting to become less reliable. Uh, and I read this yesterday, so it has nothing to do with what the survey was today. I was going to talk about it anyway. But look at this. The survey response rates are plummeting. Survey response rates plummeting on population surveys, employment statistics surveys. The employment, the response rates are going from 60% to approaching 40%. Look at the JOLTS report. I mean, a plummet from about 70% response rate to like a 38% response rate. An absolute plummet here, employment cost index report plummeting. So you're getting these massive plummeting response rates. And it's not me, but it's individuals are expecting that these response rates are potentially going to affect and skew the data. Because really what you're getting is the Census Bureaus or the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're sort of trying to apply different weights to responses to try to fix these weird uh, uh, lack of responses we're starting to get. And some folks say that businesses that are having sort of worse reports are less likely to actually respond uh, to this information because out of uh, maybe it's embarrassment or, or uh, you know, they don't want to talk about how their business is doing poorly. They're kind of tired about that. I don't know. But this PPI report, either way you slice it, is not good. 
This is not. This is this this is uh, starting to look very sticky. Uh, and, and you know, sticky is nice when it's transitory, but uh, you know, otherwise, you know, or you're playing with like I don't know, like uh, Play-Doh or something like that. But you know, you don't want to be sticky all day long. And right now, this is starting to look a little sticky here. 0.7% of January, and think about it. Every report for January has been hot, right? We had CPI hot, we had jobs hot, and now we have PPI hot. Like January is just a hot month. Now, some say it's possible that uh, January is so hot because you actually have this this uh, um, potential warmer uh, winter than you usually do. And because you have a warmer winter, maybe people are spending money on, uh, uh, you know, spring clothing more uh, and earlier than expected at higher prices. And this is why you had an apparel jump. You had a little bit of a pop in oil prices because of the potential that China's reopening was going to drive oil prices up. So you had some initial speculating, pushing up oil prices. Anyway, so we already read the numbers out. Let's actually see what this was attributable to. So uh, final demand good, moved up 1.2% in January, largest increase uh, since rising 2.1% in June of 2022. Uh, the January advance is attributable to a 5% jump in final demand for energy. Now remember, energy is even when you strip it out for core, it still ends up increasing the cost of other goods within PPI. That's because, you know, even though you could have like a real estate agent as a core service, as an example, their costs might actually be going up because it's more expensive to drive around. So maybe, for example, real estate agent might not be the best example, but the, uh, let's say a bookkeeper or whatever wants to charge more money, whatever, right? Expenses go up when oil and energy prices flow through the economy, so people have to end up raising their prices. This is not good, though. I mean, these are, these are pretty big numbers here, and so far this is a miss on everything here. We know that uh, energy moved up. What else here? The index for residential natural gas, diesel fuel, jet fuel, soft drinks, and motor vehicles also moved higher. We actually did see that. Both Pepsi and Coke talked about higher prices. Prices for fresh and dry vegetables decreased 33%. Okay, well, nobody wants those anyway. Uh, then you've got organic chemicals declined. Oh, really? Lower organic chemical uh, expenses while at the same time they're all spilling in Ohio. That's interesting. So index for final demand services, 0.4% in January. What, did, what would cause this here? Let's see here. Uh, less trade transportation warehousing. So over 80% of the broad-based increase in January is attributable to prices for final demand services. Less trade transportation warehousing. Wow. Wow. That shows you sticky services right here. We saw this in the CPI report as well, which is not good. But this is sticky services right here. Sticky services right here. When 80% of the PPI move uh, for for uh, services is basically broad-based outside of just trade transportation warehousing, 80% of the increase is based on those services outside of trade transportation warehousing, which is basically everything else uh, in the services sector. Product detail, let's see here. Uh, hospital outpatient care uh, jumped 1.4%. Automobiles jumped, we saw this uh, with, with the used vehicle reports. Health, beauty, optical retailing, portfolio management, uh, airfare, passenger services moved higher, margins, uh, okay, let's see here. Let's look at the actual chart here. Uh, 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 let's see, intermediate demand, that's fine. Okay, I wanna get, I wanna get I would, a little bit more detailed on some of the actual items. So let me get the detail chart here. But uh, so far, the this beat is not going to make for a great day for the market here. Uh, stocks uh, per Wall Street here, extending losses, dollar turning positive, yields ticking higher. 
the yield part ticking higher is very interesting when it comes to uh, real estate because uh, as, as much as people got excited that rates were starting to come down and people were starting to get pre-approved at lower rates again, you actually have rates moving up again. So you're going to get potentially just this very temporary pop uh, and then uh, then you'll end up getting a, a potentially a decline again in, uh, in in real estate. So not so great. A little head fake here for real estate as uh, rates continue to move up. Uh, and you saw with housing starts as well, complete disaster on housing starts. Now we're going to go look at some of the actual categories here that we have uh, for PPI. Let's see here. Uh, getting PPI here. Okay. Looks like final demand foods. December to January, final demand foods actually in aggregate down 1%, but final demand goods in general up 1.2% on the seasonally adjusted basis for uh, final demand goods. That's actually not ideal that you're starting to see a little bit of a pickup again in uh, goods inflation, right? That's what we don't want. We don't want to see any kind of pickup in goods inflation. Uh, and you're starting to see that increase on PPI. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to come over to CPI if companies end up taking it in the margins, right? They take it in the margin. Uh, that's possible. Uh, it's very possible, but it's still showing you these sort of more broad-based price uh, uh, pressures, right? That's not good. Now you've, And what's also not good is now you've got people in the comments saying things like Team Burry and putting up little bears here. <laughs> uh, so what do we got here? Final demand goods up 1.2%. That's not fantastic. Uh, final demand foods here, minus 1%, fine. Let's go ahead and get past that, maybe with the exception of coffee, up 1.9%. Wow, it's not good for Starbucks. Alcoholic beverages, let's go, minus 0.1%. Thank goodness, okay, no price increases there. That's fantastic. Although in the UK, there were, I was reading some reports yesterday that you had uh, uh, restaurants and travel go down, but alcohol prices were going up because demand for alcohol spending was up. So I don't know, maybe the people are sad and in the UK, but but anyway, uh, you know maybe they're sad they didn't get Liz Trust. So what else do we have here? Industrial machine handling equipment up 0.7 percent. Electronic computers and computer equipment up two percent. These are like massive moves here. It just makes you wonder. Like at some point, do we still trust all of these surveys that are just coming in all over the place? Like why is it you know the last three months of 2022 everything seems like it's disinflating and yay disinflation is here. Now all of a sudden it's like a rug pull again. Nope. Uh, inflation's back. This is wild. What is this? Tires up 2.4% for tires in a month? Good Lord. Construction, machinery, and equipment up 3.4%. Holy smokes. Uh, I mean, it's it, this is so broad-based. I don't know how you could say there's disinflation in producer prices when it's this broad-based. And I'll tell you, I even said it in CPI. I'm like, man, it's still pretty broad-based where you're seeing the inflation on services. Now, it was nice. The market was rallying, but it's like, I remember saying to the course members that day, I'm like, I don't know. The CPI report doesn't seem that great. The market rallied anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll, I appreciate the rally, but this so these, this, these January reports suck for the disinflation narrative. They suck. All right. What else do we have here? We got 3.7% up on lawn and garden equipment. Okay. Uh, Truck trailers down 1.3%. Okay, so a little bit down. Cigarettes are going up. Oh, no, 1.7%. Mobile homes, though, folks. Mobile homes are 1.3% less expensive. I think that's fascinating. Don't buy a mobile home ever. It's stupid. Uh, costume, jewelry, and novelties. Okay, 4.6%. Uh, then you've got apparel, 
wholesaling down 6.7%. I mean, look at the volatility in some of these numbers. This is just insane how volatile some of these numbers are. Uh, this is remarkable. Sporting goods, including boats and retailing, up 10.1%. It just makes you wonder if the, the seasonally warmer winter pushed this up, right? Health, beauty, optical goods, retailing, 4.1%. But then over here, fuels and lubricants down 17.5%. I don't even know what to make of this data. I mean, it just, it seems hot, but it's just like all over the place. It's kind of exhausting how all over the place some of these numbers are. How are we doing on lumber? What is this? I mean, look at this. What is it? How are you supposed to understand this at all? Look at this. Hardwood lumber down nine points. Uh, oh, sorry. Hardwood lumber up 9.2%. Oh, but wait for it. Wait for it. Softwood lumber down 9.7%. So one's up 9%, one's down 7%. Like, what is this? Uh, this is so confusing how some things are just massively plummeting. Some things are massively increasing. The survey responses are plummeting. The weights are changing. It's a warmer winter, January than usual. People are keeping more employees than usual. I don't, I don't think anybody knows what's up or what's down anymore. Uh, this is wild. Uh, speaking of what's up or what's down, you've got the NASDAQ sitting down about 1% right now. Honestly, for how terrible this report was, that's not even that bad. It could be even worse. Now, we'll see what the day does. But this in, it, this is supposed to be a horrible report, right? Uh, the bond market's barely responding. 3.8%. The 10-year Treasury's flat. It's flat. 3.81%. Uh, this, this is just wild to me. Uh, I would say... If I had to try to conclude this, I would say, first of all, it's bad news. I'm not trying to put bullish news or water this down. January, these are terrible reports. Now, the Federal Reserve did tell us yesterday, January is the biggest month of the year for seasonal adjustments. So you have to take January with a grain of salt. The Federal Reserve said that, okay? Keep that in mind, the Fed said that. That could be why the bond market is relatively flat right now. You would expect after that report, 10-year treasury yields to skyrocket. Maybe the two years are moving. Let's go pull the two-year. You know, your shorter-term treasury yields. Not really. 0.01, yeah. I mean, this is basically flat on the two-year even. So, so you don't actually really have a bond market that's saying, oh my gosh, we're freaking out over this. Now we'll see. Maybe it'll change throughout the day. You do obviously have uh, uh, the NASDAQ rotating down about 1%. And we'll see if it gets worse as uh, sort of the day goes on. You got the SPY down 0.8%. Uh, what's the dollar doing? Let's go to you up over here. We'll look at the um, uh, dollar index. Potentially, uh, well, yeah, nominally up. I mean, uh, do we have the DXY on uh, Weeble? Let's just look at the dollar. I mean, you're, you're, the dollar should be rising, but at least per Weeble here in pre-market, you're not seeing much of a movement. But you would expect the dollar would be rising. But then again, yields aren't really rising. So maybe the market's kind of like, whatever, it's January. If we rally today, which, which we've seen this many times over the last multiple weeks, we've seen many times red pre-market, green close of business. If we rally today, what you're seeing is people taking money off the sidelines, throwing it in to the markets because they see this as potentially a short-term buy-the-dip opportunity, and they're actually just writing off January as, well, January is just seasonal adjustment month, 
and this is a weird season. It's also, I mean, it's very unique given that you're coming off of the pandemic. That's the only way you could be bullish about this because the actual reports are bad. So the fact of the matter is, it's bad. In fact, you know, you're going to get more and more stories about this. But here, look at this. The PPI data was decidedly unfriendly to the disinflationary narrative. Not only did it come in quite a bit higher than expected across all aggregates last month. True. I mean, this was terrible. These were terrible results. But prior data was also revised up. This left year-over-year -year readings higher than expected by half a percent or more across all aggregates. All aggregates up over half a percent. Ouchie wouchies. Meanwhile, jobless claims remained well-behaved, with a smidge lower than expected in continuing claims pretty much right on forecast. On the other hand, the Philadelphia Fed continued its zigzag relationship with the Empire Survey, printing well below expectations for manufacturing. Interesting. And then, of course, housing starts got destroyed. But the big deal is PPI, which is probably going to move up terminal rate expectations. But then again, I'm still not seeing movement in the bond market. Maybe we'll get it throughout the day. That's what I would be paying attention to. So if you want to know, is the market discarding this madness? Then I think it's very important to think, okay, let's go ahead and, uh, and, and see what the bond market does today. Now, Loretta Mester is, uh, apparently just came out and started talking about how she saw a compelling case for a 50 basis point hike at the last FOMC meeting because she says that uh, there's, still a com uh, there's still a lot more work to be done on inflation. That's not great. Uh, but with this PPI report, you're probably going to get some uh, Wall Street analysts starting to call for a 50 basis point hike again uh, for the March meeting. We'll see how expectations end up pricing out right now. Right now, nobody's really expecting a 50 basis point hike. That would be a little bit of a rug pull. You do have markets selling off a little bit more, though, after Loretta's master suggestion that, hey, we see a compelling basis, uh, a reason for potentially a 50 basis point hike, or at least she saw that in February. We'll see uh, if, if that sort of uh, pressure ends up getting more support uh, in March. I don't think it will. I think it's much more likely that they would just attach another 25 BP hike in the summer. So instead of potentially pausing in May, you get a pause in June or July, right? And you sort of push back another 25. That's been relatively consistent with what Jay Powell has been looking at. But Loretta's master's comments coming conveniently right after the PPI report suggesting, yeah, you know, I was actually pushing for 50 in, in Feb, uh, probably is going to lead the market to take a little bit of a breather on, uh, on, on, on the rally that we've seen. Again, if we end up pushing up throughout the day, it's, in my opinion, a sign that markets are taking cash off the sidelines. They're buying the dip. They don't believe the January reports. If the market trends continues to trend down, maybe, finally, after a strong jobs report, strong CPI report, and now a strong C a PPI report, and I mean really strong PPI report, uh, maybe it's time for the market to start waking up a little bit and realizing, okay, maybe we shouldn't be rallying straight to the moon. Although there's nothing like two-week call options to take you to the moon or to zero. Anyway. That's PPI for you. Boy, that was a disaster. But the good news is you can still get 69% uh, off with a flash sale for the programs on Building Your Wealth. Link down below through Friday at 11.59 p.m. Boy, oh boy. Oh, man. Okay, let's, uh, let's just briefly take a look and see how some of the markets are reacting because these PPI numbers are terrible. Maybe cheaper alternatives as people end up switching to more expensive items and more expensive items are disinflation. I... Uh, 
I, I, I mean, that's an idea that, you know, people end up downgrading, but so far it's uh, people still have uh, a lot more money than, than generally people expect. We'll actually be talking about that in, in just a moment, but uh, um, first I think I want to talk about um, the, uh, what's it called? Um, we're going to talk about the dot-com bubble in just a moment. Steve asks, how does this impact your rubber band theory you spoke about? Yeah, I, I actually think it reiterates the rubber band theory, right? What it does is it says that uh, the supply chains are so available, but the problem is the input costs, much to, to your argument, are still rising, right? Whether that's commodities or whatever, right? Uh, and that's probably because you're still seeing a feed through of higher labor costs, not necessarily because consumers are willing to pay more. Right? This is a producer report. So this actually has nothing to do with the consumer's willingness to pay more. It also, in my opinion, probably still has little to do with the future supply chain expectations of when consumers go back to respending. I think what it mostly has to do with is you still have embers of inflation, whether that's uh, much higher wage costs than we had a year ago or commodity prices, which are still a lot higher than where they were certainly a year and a half ago. So I think you're still seeing that flow through. It is a little bit concerning that you're seeing, though, the month-over-month -month numbers coming in uh, the way they are. I mean, look at, for example, uh, the month-over-month -month numbers. Yeah, I mean, the month-over-month -month numbers were terrible. Final demand, month-over-month, -month, 0 0.7, 0 0.5, 0.6. I mean, these are massive numbers. I mean, at an annualized rate, just looking at core food energy trade month-over-month, -month, you're sitting at 0.6. That brings you out to an annualized rate of 7.2%. That's very, very high. Very, very high. Uh, so it's not great. Uh, again, the rubber band theory applies to when consumers and the sort of consumer boom of potentially consumers coming back to respend, if markets start improving, are they going to be able to, uh, are companies going to be able to support that demand? I think the answer to that is yes. I think the big issue is when you still have the embers of producer price inflation increasing, what you're really doing is you're relying on the cushion of companies to be able to absorb that. And so they end up taking it in the L in the margin, right? I think that's where you end up getting smacked is in margin, unfortunately. So this PPI report is very bad, I think, for, for producers uh, of, of, uh, of, of uh, really anything that relies on high input costs. In, in the craziest way possible, uh, companies that probably have the lowest producer price inflation are SaaS companies, right? And think about it, you're talking about tech labor which isn't seeing the kind of increases in wage costs that you would see otherwise uh, anymore. In fact, you're seeing more layoffs, right? This is, although, you know, that's sort of countered by a little bit of the fact that Fidelity is now apparently announcing they're going on a 4,000-person hiring spree. But that's a little bit different than in the tech world. So the tech world, in a weird way, you have softer inflation in tech wages, layoffs in, in tech, and software doesn't as heavily obviously rely on commodities, I mean, to the extent that they're in servers and server racks and stuff like that. But beyond that, you could scale software substantially more than you could scale factories uh, and, and goods that are exposed to sort of this producer price inflation that you're seeing. So in a weird way, SaaS companies get the best of both, less PPI and lower potentially tech overhead. Now, the valuations of SaaS are still a little rich, but boy, you're seeing some of them rebound substantially now because uh, the earnings are coming in pretty dang good for some of these SaaS companies which is not what was expected at all. So uh, we'll see what ends up happening. But yeah, that's um, it's pretty wild when it comes to uh, this PPI report. There's, there's no doubt about that. This is a wild report. So uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, let's take a very brief look here at what the markets are doing just to see the reaction in the, in the AM here. 
Looks like you're trying to get a little bit of a flattening and a rebound here. No certainty that that'll actually hold. Negative 1.3 on, on the QQQ, negative 1 on the spine, negative 165 on Tesla, arc down a couple percent and phase down a couple percent. So it looks like you've got a little bit of potentially a sell down here after this hot PPI report. Uh, although not terribly much of a surprise uh, because that report, I will say, is absolutely terrible. Ter terrible report. Terrible report. Terrible report. All right. Next story. Now we got to talk about the madness of the dot-com recession and how it could potentially relate in similarity to the recession that we might end up seeing here. Obviously, we got a terrible PPI report, which is very, very scary, and suggests that when you have a bad jobs report, bad CPI report, a little bit hot on CPI with pretty sticky inflation in some of the parts, and then a horrible PPI report, it either says the January data is rigged thanks to seasonal adjustments, or things are actually getting bad again. Maybe that second wave of Michael Burry inflation is actually truly coming. And something we have to look at is potentially this Jeffries piece, which talks about the world of sticky tightening in the face of sticky inflation. And Jeffries aligns our potential recession that we're walking into now with the dot-com bubble. And I'll tell you, there's nothing to ruin a bull's day more than you talking about the dot-com bubble in relation to today's potential bubble popping in 2023, because we've only been suffering this pain for about one year and two months, 14 months, relative to the over 30-month dot-com bubble, which means you're potentially only halfway through the pain. And maybe when consumers do end up running out of money eventually, that's when you end up seeing not only the revenue declines at companies, but you also see EPS declines as producer price inflation ends up remaining hot. Now again, it's weird. It's really weird because when you actually look at the earnings calls of some of these companies and you look at companies like Pepsi, what do they do? They complain about higher wages from a year ago. They complain about higher input costs into their sodi pops, but they talk about not actually being able to raise prices anymore, not planning on raising prices anymore, that they're just working through the lingering effects of the increases and in, in the embers of inflation, but there's not enough elastic demand to continue to support higher consumer prices. But... You know, that's just trying to soften the bear argument. But let's see what the bears are saying here. Jeffries says, neither the labor market nor inflation is necessarily behaving as the equity markets would wish. Both are not cooling fast enough. And you have a deeply inverted yield curve and quite a weird correlation uh, between, well, in the bond market. And that this cycle is oddly similar to the 2000 to 2002 tech bubble crash. We bottomed and kind of drug along the bottom between September of 02 and March of 03 when the Federal Reserve finally broke things and actually fully had to U-turn and sort of bail out markets and then we sort of hit a bottom. Uh, we hope we don't have to go through that again where the Federal Reserve goes so far and breaks something, but so far the bear case today, pretty dang loud, especially after those PPI numbers. But what do you have here with Jeffrey saying? Jeffries is saying that January U.S. CPI was mostly in line with expectations, although uh, you did have year-over-year -year numbers slow just enough to still be considered, in their minds, slightly disinflationary. However, they don't believe that's going to stop the Fed from hiking rates in March and probably or potentially in May. Instead, 
they actually believe that the CPI report points a picture of being very sticky at the core and no longer rapidly slowing around the edges. Now, you could end up hoping for more slowing around the edges if you actually get housing come down, given that housing made up about half of all the inflation that we saw in the CPI report for uh, the month of January. But you have declines in core goods uh, 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 fading away, right? You don't have those declines coming in as fast anymore. And Jeffries warns about potentially the fact that we're going to end up going into a profit recession, much like that of the 1970s. And when you start talking 1970s and dot-com bubble, you're basically a bear. But they could end up having a point because consider the following what they mentioned. I'm going to read this paragraph here because I think it's very useful. Presently, the bulk of companies that are generating sufficient nominal profits to service debts and dividends are, uh, are, are averting a credit recession, while at the same time the labor market is slowly uh, uh, being shed to protect margins. So in other words, right now, you're basically saying, look, companies are seeing revenues maybe stall out, but the reason they're able to kind of keep going is because they're trying to do whatever they can to protect their margins. Fine. But how long does that last? Well, it's a concern. It's a concern on two folds. One is actually debt restructuring. Because of the substantially inverted yield curve, any kind of debts that you had from before 2022 that have to end up getting refinanced in 2023 and 4 are going to lead to a lot more of a debt cost for you. So companies that have a lot of debt and at the same time are seeing their inability to potentially raise consumer prices more but are seeing their producer prices go up could potentially end up facing bankruptcy or restructuring, particularly according to Jeffries, along the lines of unlisted firms. And they believe that because of this, you actually end up seeing a substantially strong argument that said, and I'm kind of going to summarize this Jeffrey's article a little bit because they, they, they talk in, in tongue that's a little bit complicated. And it took me a few reads just to be able to try to simplify it. Basically, what they're saying is, look, companies expect uh, companies expenses uh, in even though they're cutting in some places, companies expenses are going to rise. It probably should look like that. There we go. Companies' expenses are going to rise thanks to higher refi costs on debt and sticky inflation uh, inflation at the core for uh, uh, especially in, in producer prices, right? As we saw in the report today. On top of that, this market is starting to look eerily similar to the 2000 to 2002 bubble where basically we still have to face the EPS recession. That's what Jeffrey's arguing here. This is very Michael Burry-esque. Michael Burry, still another 50% to go. The second half is coming. The second wave of inflation is coming. That's going to actually end up pushing company earnings over the edge. These Q4 earnings are an anomaly, right? That's sort of your bear argument right now, your bear case right now. Now, when you compare to 2000, I think it's very useful to look at what I'm about to pull up. And no, it's not a reminder that this Friday at 11.59 p.m., the programs on Building Your Wealth have an expiring flash sale that we're doing just for this month. Also, it's worth noting for those of you who wanna know, yes, you can shadow me, whether it's in person, if we're traveling, you travel with me. Travel's not guaranteed. If you wanna shadow me, you can do that. Uh, I don't sell travel, I sell shadowing, right? Uh, if you want to join the stocks course to learn about, well, you get access to all my trades, whether they're good or bad, you get that, you get my, sort of my insight into the trades. But the psychology of money is very, very popular. 
uh, as well as the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing course. Very, very popular as well. That's probably our most popular bundle is one and two. If you want to get into managing properties yourself or renovating them and saving money on renovations, we've got options there. And of course, growing your income. We start the Elite Hustlers live stream this Saturday, and that's a custom live stream that we do with just uh, people trying to grow their business this Saturday. So that's coming up. But before we uh, uh, keep going on El Corsez and that expiring flash sale, I want you to look at something here. I put this together and it really, again, maybe I'm being Mr. Mr. Bullish uh, over here, but I want you to compare for a moment with me the NASDAQ in the dot-com bubble, which the NASDAQ is tech heavy, right? So this is, let me make this very, very simple and very clear. Blue line equals tech, NDX 100, NASDAQ 100, white bars equal broad uh, US market, right? The S&P 500. So what I also want you to know is that this represents earnings per share, EPS. And when people compare the dot-com bubble to today, I personally think they're being slightly extreme. The reason I say that is because I want you to look at the earnings of the NASDAQ relative to the S&P 500 in the dot-com era. So let's zoom in for a moment into the dot-com era. Here is the dot-com bubble in this red square right here. In fact, maybe I could even highlight it in red. No, it's not working. Anyway, the point is the blue line right here is under, and this is based on a factor of 100 starting here. So in other words, they're scaled at a factor of 100. So they're scaling together. That's really important for those of you statisticians who want to know how I set this up. It's set to a factor of 100 so we could see how they diverge in growth. But what I want you to see in the dot-com bubble is first of all, earnings in the NASDAQ started below the S&P 500. Then earnings basically went to zero during the dot-com bubble. This is not earnings growth. This is straight up earnings. So that means in the NASDAQ, you had companies that were not very profitable. This was basically the dot-com bubble was an era of speculation of profitless tech companies. That's what the dot-com bubble was. Now zoom out for a moment. Look at what has changed. Look at that. You should be able to understand this graph yourself. Look, I'm going to hide myself so you can see it yourself. Go take a screenshot. Okay. Now's your chance. Okay, good. Chance over. What's the difference? The blue line has vastly exceeded the white bars. The NASDAQ earnings have gone up by a factor of 847. So call it 8.8 8 times on a factor of 100, right? So 8x earnings on NASDAQ and 5x on S&P 500 relative to each other on a nominal basis starting uh, then adjusted to a factor of 100. So this isn't like growth, right? We're not comparing growth rates. Obviously, if you start at zero, the growth rate is going to be higher. I'm actually talking net earnings, you had almost no actual earnings. Now, when you compare the actual earnings between the two, the NASDAQ has over 50% over more earnings, more EPS than the S&P 500. So over time, the NASDAQ has become the earnings powerhouse, 62.5% greater earnings today than the S&P 500. So when you look back to the dot-com era, you look at speculation in tech stocks where there were no earnings, where earnings were below the S&P 500. Today, you look at big NASDAQ 100 tech companies, earnings are 62% higher than S&P 500 companies. In addition to that, 
Let's go ahead and compare ratios of the dot-com era to today. These are the forward PE ratios for the S&P 500 in this case. So the S&P 500, and this, the whole point here is to compare to the dot-com era, right? I want to compare to what's happening in the dot-com era today. So uh, again, we compare the NASDAQ and S&P 500. Now we're going to move away from that. We're just going to look at the S&P now and compare it to the valuations we have today compared to the dot-com era. During the dot-com era, the S&P 500 was selling for multiples between 24 and 26. We peaked out over here at roughly about 23. But the point is, where do we sit now on forward PE ratios for the S&P 500? This is where we sit right now. I drew a red line taking you all the way across. On the S&P 500, we're sitting slightly higher than where the S&P 500 ended up bottoming out. S&P 500 forward PE ratios ended up bottoming in about 2002 in about, at about 14 to 15 times uh, earnings, which is a little bit closer to where we bottomed out at the end of 2022. So you could potentially make the argument that if I draw a line across that we've already hit the worst, we've already hit that bottom. Uh, you can see what's slightly maybe a couple points lower there in the dot-com era. So that's worth noting that did we hit the bottom already? Or are we going to retest that bottom? We'll see. Over here, if you look at the mid-caps S&P 400, you're actually aligning where we are now roughly with the bottom of 02. Look at small caps, same story. All right, so that's interesting. So even though everybody likes to compare to the dot-com bubble, we're actually not too far off on uh, the, 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 a relative basis you know, comparing now to the bottom then in any of these charts. Again, you look at, look at the S&P 600, small cap 600. Where we are now basically aligns perfectly with the bottom over here. In fact, we went lower on a, a forward PE basis, uh, on the weekly basis, uh, compared to the dot-com bubble. We've already been lower. Let's look over here at peg ratios. This is a potential bear argument. When you look at S&P 500 growth rates, you are actually paying more for growth today than what you were paying there on the S&P 500. Now, this is where you could potentially make the argument, well, this is why you want to position out of the S&P 500 and into tech, because tech growth is more resilient than S&P 500 in total, where you've got a lot of that consumer uh, staple, uh, the consumer staple stock sitting in the S&P 500, and we expect their earnings growth rate to falter relative to maybe tech that could still recover. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe that's at its bottom, right? So you've got mixed signals. I'll give it that. You've got mixed signals. Here's another one. Forward PE growth versus value just gives you a growth versus value ch uh, chart. Here you can see the bubble in growth, the bubble in growth. The bubble in growth then was a lot higher than what you have now. And if you look at the bottom of the growth bubble, it actually aligns with where we are now. So conclusions, because there's a lot of information that I've provided here, right? I think it's very difficult to make a perfect comparison to any prior recession. In uh, the 2000 or in the 1970s, you had inflation expectations that were substantially higher and unanchored than the inflation expectations we have today. Even though we're getting these crazy reports that are suggesting, you know, okay, in January we got some bad reports, that's bad. That becomes a trend. It is going to unanchor inflation expectations. That would be bad. But so far, it seems inflation expectations are stable. So we do have some differences to the 70s, which is good. And I'm not here to say this time is different. I'm not here to say YOLO everything on margin. Absolutely not. 
I've been saying for weeks, I'm most, actually for months, quite frankly, I've been saying I'm mostly invested in this market. Do I think it makes sense to keep maybe 10, 15% cash on the sidelines? Yes. Do I think it makes sense to stay at a margin? Yes. Do I think it makes sense to YOLO call options? No. Only if you want to gamble. That's gambling. That could be fun, but it's gambling. So, conclusions. The NASDAQ has substantially greater earnings today than it did in the dot-com bubble. So I think the comparison to the dot-com bubble is somewhat unfair when you look at the NASDAQ. Also, our market has declined about three times as fast as the dot-com bubble. So there's an argument to be made that the markets have already bottomed. Is it possible that we're going to continue to get good reports, then bad reports? Good reports and bad reports. Absolutely. What do I think bottom line that's consistent with? Bottom line, I personally think it's very consistent with there's our 3x faster than the NASDAQ decline. What does it end up being consistent with? This. A very, very bumpy Nike swoosh style recovery where we go up for a bit, we go down for a bit. We go up for a bit, we go down for a bit. But the trend line is likely, in my opinion, to be up. I do not think that we have a larger down leg ahead of us than what we had in October. I could be wrong. I don't have a crystal ball. But at least I'm going to have the balls to make a prediction. And I am making that prediction by aggregating all of the data that we do. And we're not always right. But as researchers, trying to understand what companies are actually saying. We're looking at actual forward-leading indicators and also aligning with what the Federal Reserve is saying that January tends to be the month of seasonal revisions, weight revisions, and it may as well suggest pretty volatile surveys that we kind of want to throw out. Now, if we get a second report in a row of a trend, that's a problem. That's a potential red flag. So am I as bearish about this potential comparison to a dot-com recession? No, of course not. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be putting my money where my mouth is. I'm in. I'm in, baby. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, you know, does it make, again, sense to have a little bit of capital on the side for a little buy-the-dip opportunities, psychologically help you through this sort of Nike swoosh recovery? Yes, of course. You should form your own opinion with the research that I put together. Just because I'm a licensed financial advisor doesn't make me perfect. Just because I try to provide so much value every single day, not only on this channel, but in the courses on building your wealth and our course member live streams or on lectures to try to consolidate everything that I do to make it simple for you to get caught up with the way that I look at things. You don't have to agree with all my moves, but get caught up with my perspectives. Uh, you know, I hope you join those. Use the flash sale link down below, Expiring Friday. Uh, doesn't mean I'm perfect about everything, but I do think I provide uh, excellent perspective. And, uh, you know, obviously I wish you the best in, in all of your investments, but... I am bullish on stocks, bearish on real estate still right now. That's been, that's been very, very consistent. So I like to bring you what some of the bears are saying, though, because I don't want to be blinded, right? I don't want to be blinded and blindsided. So I got to pay attention to what the bears are saying. And right now, I've got a pretty good argument that there's some things showing up a little bit more sticky than they should. That could be consistent with the Nike swoosh recovery. We'll see. We'll see. So far, I don't think there's enough of a suggestion that we deserve another leg down deeper than what we had in October. My take. Ugh. Why do I always... It, oh, I think the coffee honestly hits me around 6 a.m. And, like, I feel like I start getting, like, heart palpitations because I'm getting, like, so worked up over this stuff. I think I just, I just love it so much. Like, I get so excited about this. Like, I think you have to be kind of insane to wake up at 3 a.m. every day and want to do numbers. 
So like, if you haven't heard my schedule, I, I was talking with course members about this the other day. Uh, and I, I, I'll just share a brief overview with you. My schedule is like 2.53, wake up, try to get the damn coffee pot on by 3 a.m. Waking up is the hardest part. I try to sleep with uh, with the kids like and, and, and Lauren in, in the same room. And the strategy there is I wear an Apple Watch. So the Apple Watch is just supposed to wake me up. But if I don't get up, my iPhone goes off and then it wakes everyone up. And then I'm an asshole. So I need to, I, I try, I force myself to get up and then go turn off the phone. Ideally, you get up to turn off the phone. That's another trick. Uh, anyway, then I do all this stock stuff. Uh, well, well, it's YouTube between basically 3 and 6.30, course member live stream. Then I got to cut up the YouTube videos, uh, post them, thumbnails, titles, you know, whatever, do all our YouTube stuff. Generally, by 8 o'clock, it switches to now people in real estate mode. So it's we're researching together. If we're flying, we're researching on the plane. Uh, we're studying the markets together. We're looking at earnings together. I was in the back of a, a, a you know a van yesterday, looking at earnings at market close, studying what's going on with with uh, you know earnings, how they're coming out, not trying to understand the market, and we're collaborating, talking about this while we're in commute for looking at real estate. Right? Yesterday, all in one day, I flew from California to St. George, Utah, uh, to Vegas. Looked at real estate in both places. Went to a factory. Came back. Uh, took to get, uh, took all my research, put it together, prepped it for this morning, prepped some more this morning, went live, uh, and, uh, and then it's sort of a flywheel. Try to do this like every day. It's a little wild. So it's a crazy schedule because it's kind of like working like 2.53. It's kind of like working 3 to 8 and then going to your next job and working 8 to 5. Uh, and, and, and by then I deserve a beer. So screw you if you don't think I deserve a beer. Uh, fortunately, uh, I, it, now I, when I fly, somebody else is flying and somebody else is driving. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, yeah, then, uh, then it all repeats. So, uh, okay. Now, uh, now you have a little bit of, uh, insight into, into, into that schedule. Uh, you want to follow it along. You could do that, uh, by following me along the, uh, on, on, um, Instagram. Uh, just at Real Meet Kevin on Instagram. Or do I have Meet Kevin? Oh, no, I'm Meet Kevin on Instagram. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so uh, another thing that we have to talk about before I go to the course member live stream, uh, and this is also actually uh, somewhat a little bit more bearish. Uh, whatever, we got to do it. I actually, actually, I don't know if it's bearish. I don't know if it's bearish or bullish. Uh, let's figure it out together, okay? This, this is really important. So we got to talk about this. Damn, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right, stand by. Five seconds. Holy smokes, we got to talk about the consumer because the consumer is not running out of cash the way you think. Last year, we were told by the big banks like JP Morgan that, uh-oh, people are going through their savings and they're running out of excess savings. You will not believe the latest data that JP Morgan is giving us on the actual bank balances that people have. It is absolutely insane, and it should affect the way that you invest. Not personalized financial advice for you, but you should look at that and go, damn, I didn't realize that. It's nutty. So let's talk about that and what that potentially means for a 6% terminal federal funds rate from the Federal Reserve. Anyway, let's get started right after, of course, I have to mention 69% off flash sale. 
not only on the shadowing experience, but all the programs on building your wealth, whether it's stocks and psychology, money, real estate investing, zero to millionaire, start with your first home, first rental property, second rental property. Then you want to go into managing property yourself or reno renovating better, do-it-yourself property management, rental renovations. And then of course, you've got the Elite Hustlers course, uh, YouTube and uh, real estate agent course where we get together and try to help you increase your income so you have more of an income to invest. Of course, you could use that flash sale on the shadowing experience as well. Okay, let's get into consumer health. JP Morgan report. Information from bank and credit card CEO shows that cash balances, both checking and savings, remain elevated to pre-COVID levels. Now you're gonna see exactly by how much in just a moment, and it's insane. Additionally, this cash pile has been declining at a slower than expected rate. In other words, CEOs thought we were going to burn through excess cash faster than we actually are. That means people, uh, 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 you know, end up having uh, 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 more money to support company earnings. Consumers are holding up less, uh, consumers are holding less credit debt and are paying bills at a higher rate than before the pandemic. How insane is that? Because in November, December, we saw these insane credit spikes of people like taking on way more debt in October as well. Debt accrual actually declined in January. We didn't take on as much debt in January. But at the end of the year, people were going crazy into debt. More personal loans. It was a big boon for SoFi and Upstart. They killed it with personal loans. Upstart had a fantastic uh, report yesterday. Uh, they were up, uh, what were they? They were up 28% yesterday. Today in pre-market, they're giving back like 6%, but who cares? They're up like 28% yesterday. It's absolutely insane. Uh, and, and so you've got consumers borrowing like crazy right now. But listen to this. Combining this information, JP Morgan is telling us, Fears of a consumer-led recession in 2023 appear overblown, absent a black swan event. In their words, exogenous shock, whatever. Under this hypothesis, the earliest a recession would materialize is mid-2024. That actually aligns with the e inverted yield curve, which says the recession could be delayed to 2024, right? Now, there's this talk about maybe oversimplifying the market, though, by talking about hard landing versus soft landing versus no ladder uh, landing. And JP Morgan's basically like, dude, we have no freaking idea what this plane is doing. And quite frankly, the economy's not really a plane anyway, because who says it has to land and who says it's going to run out of gas? Like, maybe that's just not the best analogy. But anyway, one of their uh, co-heads of global equity trading says the following, and I think it's honestly probably one of the most honest perspectives I've seen right here, not because I, I think it sort of reiterates what I'm doing, but because they start off with, I don't know. I think that's just honest, right? And so he says, I don't know what this print change is, talking about the CPI numbers. So everyone I talk to is saying people are long and we should sell rallies. And it's hard to disagree with that. But every time people sell the rallies this year, it's been wrong. I think this year is shaping up to be buy dips and the 60-40 portfolio is back with short duration treasuries. I actually thought that was a very honest suggestion for people that, hey man, look, like so far selling the rips has been a mistake. Maybe any dip, buy it. And this, and I'm not saying I respect this because it aligns with me. I think that's convenient, but I respect it because I think he's honest. Like, Dude, so far selling the rips has been a bad idea because it just keeps going higher. But I think what he's saying very much aligns uh, with the Nike swoosh thesis. 
Uh, although I don't want to be subject to confirmation bias, although even being aware of your own potential confirmation bias doesn't necessarily remove your confirmation bias. Uh, anyway, so look at this, folks. Look at this chart from Bloomberg Opinion here. Household savings exploded higher during the pandemic, causing havoc in the labor market. Look at this explosion. This is insane. But you ready for the real bombshell? 69% off on the coupon. Uh, <laughs> it's a flash sale, it's not a coupon. Sorry, I had to do it. Uh, look at this. Okay, wait, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Credit card balances as a percentage of disposable income are less than they were pre-pandemic. Also true. So here it is, folks. This is the bombshell. Ready? Here we go. Wells Fargo, who highlighted spend data is still very healthy. And debit card spending is up 3% year over year in January and accelerated 1% year over year in December with credit card spending tracking 20% up in January. This is like the American Express report basically saying people are spending through this recession, right? Listen to this. Consumers with two to $5,000 in their savings account pre-pandemic, okay? I, I need you to really listen to that because I, I don't think you listened to that and that's okay. Consumers before the pandemic had on average two to $5,000 in their savings account, okay? I'm drawing that on the screen, two to $5,000, okay? This is a really important note I want you to pay attention to, okay? Two to $5,000 pre-pandemic. What do they have now? 12800 dollars currently. And this balance has been stable for the past few months after peaking at 13.4% in April 2022 per Bank of America. Holy crap. When I read this yesterday while we were traveling with uh, uh, with with members uh, or, or with, with my team members, uh, a research team, uh, I'm looking at this and I'm like, good Lord. You're telling me excess savings, which everybody's been talking about falling, has only fallen from $13,400 in April, basically a year ago, to 12.8 now. You realize 12.8 divided by 13.4 only means consumers have drawn down 4.5% of their excess savings. And it is still over 2.5x the upper end of excess savings we had before the pandemic. Consumers, again, with $2,500 in their savings account before the pandemic are now sitting at $12,800. That's a freaking bombshell. That's a bombshell. No wonder we potentially could see some form of inflationary impulses because this is insane. On top of that, you do still have JP Morgan warning about potentially you could see like, uh, you know, earnings pockets. People are spending less on gas. That's great. Cars are more efficient. You've got people saying, hey, you know, the Fed's going to end up crimping us. But despite that, what did you end up getting with retail sales yesterday? Reiterating that they're way up. People are spending way more than expected. The Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate uh, shows a, uh, uh, what, what do we have now? 2.4% on GDP now. GDP now, by the way, basically takes uh, uh, all of the latest data and they, they try to forecast what they think GDP is going to be for the nation uh, and uh, uh, using the latest economic data, right? So they try to update it all the time. But anyway, they're adjusting that GDP up for 2023. It does not look like we're walking into a recession in 2023. People have way too much freaking money. Way, way, way more money than we expected. 
uh, and GDP is moving up. Now, that does reiterate the higher for longer narrative, right? And this is why you get people saying, hey, look, there's a reason people are talking about the 6% terminal Fed funds rate, right? And uh, here, for example, I think this is a Goldman Sachs piece. They're basically talking about, we probably have to see few further data, but if 6% terminal narratives become more widely adopted, we could be in for a bout of equity weakness. But then again, as we recently, and it's worth noting, we recently went from 4.9% on a Fed terminal rate to 5.3% on market expectations. And even though we had a bumpy equity market, equity markets trended up. Very important to consider. So pretty crazy. Now, I want to be very clear. Uh, if, you, uh, if you support me and you want to you shout on me in a day, uh, some of the day, we, we can't guarantee that we're going to be traveling. Some of the days we're going to be driving uh, uh, and we'll go look at real estate. Some of the days we might, uh, we, we might, uh, might be in office days. So it's just very important. Uh, most of our shadows, uh, uh, well, I, that doesn't so much matter, but uh, the, the point is, I just want to be very, very clear. Uh, anytime that I mention the shadowing experience, very clear that uh, there's no transportation that's guaranteed. You're not you're not coming here to, to, to book transportation. You're coming to shadow me, whatever it is that I'm doing with my businesses. So I want to make that very, very clear. Uh, and you can use that flash sale uh, for 69% uh, off uh, expiring Friday. Uh, and this is some pretty crazy data that we're getting here on uh, on, on the consumer spend. But uh, it reiterates no recession this year. That is pretty remarkable. Okay, now before we go to the uh, course member live stream, uh, I, which I'm going to hop over to pretty much instantly here in just a moment, I want to uh, jump on over here uh, to uh, just take a quick look and see what the markets are doing. Looks like the uh, S&P 500 is down about 1.16%, Tesla down about 1.5%, Upstart down 5.5%, Enphase down a couple percent. How are we doing on QQQ going into the open? Down about 1.5% does look like finally the 10-year Treasury yield is waking up a little bit. I see some comments in the, here about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris maybe waking up. But anyway, uh, Treasury yields now sitting at 3.84%. Bad for real estate. Bad for real estate, right? Uh, so, uh, so, so very important. Anyway, uh, there you have that. And um, let me see if we have any other last-minute questions here. Uh, if you are not sure you're going to keep your job in the next six months, you are going to save money. Yep, very true. Very, very, very true, Steve. That's definitely a possibility. What's your favorite beer? Uh, 805, it's a local beer, but uh, you know, I'm also into IPAs, but it depends what you're going for. You know, are you going for a party or are you going for a party? <laughs> anyway, thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate y'all. Good luck in the market today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me here on Meet Kevin Report 25, and we'll see you in the next one. Hopping over to the course member live stream now. Goodbye.